I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm Shahid Abari. Welcome to this event. Um, we're going to chat for 45 minutes and then I'm going to hand over to you for questions. So start concocting fiendish um, questions for Simon. I'm sure he's up to it. Um, Simon- I'm, not, I'm not really, but I'm not. I'm, yeah. I've just torn when, my shirt when you, as well. When did you get here? Yesterday. Yesterday, okay. Yeah. We need to do some wardrobe repairs and yeah. jet, okay, jet lag. Okay, we'll fix we'll my keep shirt. We'll factor not jet that. lag, not jet lag. We'll factor that into the discussion. Yeah. Um, Simon and I have previous at the LRB bookshop. Yes. Some of you might know this, that um, I interviewed Simon for the Hamlet Doctrine a couple of years ago, four or five years ago? Maybe longer. Longer, about five um, years ago. And the Hamlet Doctrine, some of you might know, was written with Simon's then wife, Jameson Webster. Mm-hmm. And... You got divorced quite soon after yeah, our conversation right. at the LRB Bookshop. Yeah, didn't work so, out, did it? Yep. Yeah. So let's see what havoc I can wreak Right, yeah, let's see what it's I like. I don't know. We could put the tragedy into tragedy. Um, Incest, uh, parasite. We won't do that, we won't do that. We had a great chat. I think I remember we hosted it, because Jameson couldn't be here, we hosted it as a kind of Mr and Mrs competition. Yeah. So I emailed her the questions. Mm-hmm. She sent answers. And you then sprung, I asked you sprung that on questions. me. Yeah, to see if you were compatible. It turned out, well, it turned out. Um, anyway, so let's keep it lively today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for just, you know, <laughs> twisting that I'm, knife I'm, in my hand. I'm just saying it because... <laughs> Sorry. Um, Simon and I are good pals. I don't want to pretend that we're not friends. Personal life is a <laughs> Oh, sorry. Um, but people know Simon's work, right? I think lots of you will know Simon's work. You know that he's uh, a British philosopher who's mainly based now in the States at the New School in New York. He's the Han Jonas Professor of Philosophy there. And you've had this move in your work, I think, lots of us who've tracked you, as I have done since I was a graduate student 15 years ago, a move from your academic writing about ethics and deconstruction <coughs> to um, philosophy for a more general audience. Not in that derogatory, kind of, um, say, diminished version of popular philosophy, but mm-hmm. serious philosophy for a general audience who care about life, I think. Um, so the Book of Dead Philosophers, I'm thinking of, um, the Hamlet Doctrine, of course, uh, what we think about when we think about football. I think we should talk about football in relationship to tragedy, by the way. Um, but this book actually feels like a return to some of your more heavyweight academic work in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about this book, yeah. because anybody who knows your work and who's been following your work knows that this book has been rippling under the surface for a mm-hmm. long time. So why don't you start by telling us how this book came about? Mm. Okay. Um, so my first job in... Um, actually, my second, my prop, first proper academic job was at the University of Essex, a university of which I'm still proud to be associated. I don't work there anymore, but the, at the time of going there, when there was a student, was the 41st ranked university in the UK. There were 42 universities in the UK at that point. Shithole <laughs> Essex. But it was an gr- intellectual right. powerhouse. Yeah. But because of the class system in this country and the tyranny of Oxbridge and the London colleges, 
where stupidity is rewarded. <laughs> the, um, it never got the attention that it merited, but that changed to some extent. So this began at Essex, and um, I taught a class on philosophy and tragedy. And then, um, and then I did a version of that when I went to New York about 15 years ago. And then, um, you know, things kind of settled a little bit. And then in about 2011, I uh, taught a class together with Judith Butler. And there's a long story connected with that, which is, you know, we could, some point. And Judith and I taught a class which was called The Tragic and Its Limits. And she's written on um, a book on Antigone's claim. So it was a book around... And she's immersed in German theories of the tragic, Hegel and others. So we taught that class together and that was very instructive for me. And it also began to, it led to a kind of beginning of a reversal of my view about the relationship between philosophy and tragedy. And around the same time, I was, um, I think, I'm not sure, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether this memory is accurate, but... I think that I gave Judith a copy of Anne Carson's translations of Euripides. It's called Grief Lessons, which is an extraordinary set of translations with wonderful prefaces. And that, um, that set me thinking about tragedy in a different way, those, those things. And then I began to write what was a different type of book on, on tragedy. And using, using tragedy as a way of um, taking aim at philosophy principally and taking aim at what I see as a, a the dominant style of philosophy that begins with Plato. Plato is excusable but continues on down through the ages into the, the dreadful mire that is much contemporary pop philosophy and much else besides. And I wanted to write a book really on theatre. On, on, and so then that began to take shape and then um, one thing led to another, and uh, with Jameson, we thought about writing a book on Hamlet, on Shakespeare's Hamlet, which is what we did. That was the Hamlet doctrine. And I, so I put the tragedy book on to one side and did other things, then went back to it. And as the, you know, I've always had an interest in, in ancient civilizations uh, and a particular interest in ancient Greek history for all sorts of reasons. But that's kind of deepened and deepened as the years of years have gone by. So what is going on in the book is is, is an attempt to um, argue that um, there is a kind of thinking that takes place in tragedy, uh, in, in theatrical experience, which is unique and powerful. It's uh, ontologically skeptical. Um, it's unclear what moral lessons we can uh, derive from it. And it's based really on a, an idea of, of ambiguity, of moral ambiguity. Yeah. And I use that idea of theatrical experience, particularly in ancient theatre, to kind of batter my head against um, what I might call the prejudices of the philosophers, as Nietzsche would say. And Nietzsche's kind of present in this book, silent a lot of the time. I don't talk about Nietzsche much, but he's very much on my mind. Mm. And so this is a kind of attempt to kind of level accounts or, or um, sort things out in my relationship to the discipline which I've taught the last three decades, right. about which I have a very 
uneasy set of feelings philosophy. Right, okay. Yeah. I'm going to get you to, to, we're going to get three readings. I'm going to get you to read from the beginning of the book in a moment, which will ground us, I think, in the, ground the discussion a bit. But just to clarify, when you said that, um, that uh, when you were thinking about this, there was a reversal of your view yeah. of the relationship between philosophy and tragedy. What was the position that you reversed and what's the reversal? Right, so... I began, like a lot of people begin when you think about um, the relationship between philosophy and literature, that philosophy explains literature, right? Or that theory explains literature, let's say. And, uh, and philosophy, um, particularly um, Germanophone philosophy of the last 300 years, 200 odd, 50 years, has been obsessed with the idea of, of Greek tragedy and the invention of this concept called the tragic. It's there in the work of Schelling, and it continues on in, in Hegel, Hölderlin, through into Nietzsche, and on into Heidegger. So my angle of concern was very much about those philosophical theories of the tragic, which I thought were explaining something. And I had problems with it, but explaining something. As the, the reversal was to read the plays, right? To read the plays. So in many ways, the, the, the lesson of the book is read the plays. <laughs> there are 31, right? Extant Greek tragedies, and so you can read them all. They're quite short. You could read them all in a, a month, five weeks, six yeah. weeks. And and the problem with tragedy is that people tend to focus on a few plays, um, notably Antigone, um, and then on the basis of one play or a couple of plays, then uh, invent vast speculative theories of the tragic and pronouncements on human nature and the decline of the, the West or whatever it might be. Whereas what interests me is what's going, if we read these plays and watch these plays, is there something going on in these plays, a form of experience, a form of thinking, which resists that philosophical explanation? Right? Is there something actually more powerful, more compelling there? And so, you know, the, the, the book is a plea for theatre, for a certain, uh, I think, a, a kind of experience that one can have in theatre, um, not just in theatre, principally in theatre, and um, where all of your preconceptions, all of your prejudices, all of those things that you think are for that moment of engaging with a play, as a play, suspended. And you are held out there, somewhere in middle distance, watching something happen, something chaotic, ambiguous and unclear, unfurl. That is usually connected with a family, usually connected with uh, structures of kinship, and those structures of kinship are also the structures of political power. So we see that private and public, public lives kind of mesh together. Um, and I mean, really what I want to encourage is for people to, to look at these plays and to experience something that's going on in these plays and to be engaged by that. And I think that so that, that's the reversal, okay. right? So, the, so I think so it's not that philosophy explains tragedy in the same way as I never thought that philosophy explains literature. I think that's fatuous. Um, I think that in many ways that what we what we need is a, is a deeper understanding of theatrical experience right. okay. in all of its ambiguities. Yeah, sounds like you're saying that the theatre foxes philosophy, that it eludes it, that it's even yeah, yeah, and and, and philosophy begins. Um, different ways of telling this story, but on the version I tell in this book, begins in Plato with um, 
the uh, exclusion of the tragic poets yeah. from the philosophically well-ordered city. And, and there are two strategies that philosophers, writers, intellectuals take with, with theatre. You either exclude it or you domesticate it. Plato excludes it because of the di- discourse that he calls philosophy that he's invented this extraordinary form of indirect dialogue that's Socratic. The Socratic dialogues has such a close comp- competitive relationship to tragedy that he has to kind of exile it. The other strategy is the one that we associate with Aristotle, where Aristotle in those 10,000 words of the poetics, the most fateful words written on poetry uh, and in terms of the history of what we call aesthetics, um, domesticates tragedy and turns it into a series of a kind of mechanism which we think we understand. And it's somehow to do with something like catharsis, yeah. which we understand. Yeah. And we understand nothing. <laughs> That's a good so, uh, so there's this, so, so the, the, last part of the, the last part of the book, which I'm most proud because it's, it's, it's kind of tortuous. It's, it's a commentary on Aristotle. So I'm continuing this, you know, what should a philosopher do? Write commentaries on Aristotle. That's what they were doing in Baghdad in the you know the ninth century. Uh, you can t- and it's I try and and the thing about Aristotle is Aristotle is lulls you into a sense of um, tranquility. Mm-hmm. It seems so obvious that tragedy is an imitation of action that leads to the inducement of the feelings of pity and fear and leads to the catharsis of those emotions. That's what it does. We identify with her, all that stuff, and that's you know that um, is what I'm trying to in the Aristotle bit, unravel by looking at the plays, in particular how the plays of Euripides um, shatter. There are, there are the, what I call a, a pre-buttle of philosophy. Okay. Uh, the play, the plays and particular, yeah. Let's get you to start at the beginning while I recover my pen. You read, you're, you selected a section from the introduction. Yeah, I was going to read the first couple of paragraphs. Okay, let's get that first. These are the first two, I'll stand up, can I stand up? I'll stand up. Be theatrical, I think. Tragedy. Tragedy shows what is perishable, what is fragile, and what is slow-moving about us. In a world defined by by relentless speed and the unending acceleration of information flows that cultivate amnesia and endless thirst for the short-term future, allegedly guaranteed through the worship of the new prosthetic gods of technology, tragedy is a way of applying the emergency brake. Tragedy slows things down by confronting us with what we do not know about ourselves, an unknown force that unleashes violent effects on us on a daily, indeed often minute-by-minute basis. Such is the sometimes terrifying presence of the past that we might seek to disavow, but which will have its victory in the end, if only in the form of our mortality. We might think we're through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. Through its sudden reversals of fortune, and rageful recognition of the truth of our origins, tragedy permits us to come, to come face to face with what we do not know about ourselves, but which makes those selves the things that they are. Tragedy provokes what snags in our being, the snares and booby traps of the past that we blindly trip over in our relentless stumbling forward movement. This is what the ancients called fate, and it requires our complicity in order to come down on us. That's where I start. This idea of fate is important. That the we 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 think about tragedy usually as um, 
something involuntary, something happening, something that befalls you from outside. Uh, someone is dies or there's a, a terrorist attack or whatever it might be. This is a tragedy. Um, but tragedy, a definition, if you like, one definition would be that tragedy is that thing which where fate befalls us, but where we're complicit with that fate. We kind of trigger it mm. in our action. And what we're triggering in our action is, is a, 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 what we're doing, as it were, is kind of wriggling in the nets of our imprisonment by the past. Right? And I try and illustrate that in relation to Oedipus and different examples like that. So what tragedy reveals, this is the important point for me, is the partial nature of agency. Right? Um, we're not autonomous beings. We're not fully free. We're not in control of our actions. We are shaped by forces outside of our control, by definition. And what we see in plays are people who are swept away by those forces because they've triggered something in their actions that unleashes uh, a truth about the past. Yeah. Are you and then they're destroyed, yeah. often. Are you talking about Brexit? This is a really yeah. obvious question. Yes. And, I've, I'm, and I'm playing the Brexit card. Um, mm, mm. Just that um, the book, you know, this is the thing about the past not being through with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the book, you don't fall into that awful trap of writing a book that is absolutely presentist. You write no. a book that's very seriously about the history of tragedy and yeah. um, the thinking of tragedy on its own terms. Yeah. But it is always speaking to the present. So yeah. I think the question I wanted to ask you was about precisely that description of being powerless or feeling as though you were powerless in the face of fate yeah. but, and perhaps being in denial of the ways in which you are complicit in mm-hmm. your fate. That seems to me, you know, a, a kind of diagnosis of, of the present as mm-hmm. much as the tragic history that we know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true of um, where we are. Um you know what? I, I, I just I'll come to because this this I, I like this paragraph, but it'd be easier to read it than explain it. So tragedy presents a world of conflict and troubling emotion, a world where private and public lives collide and collapse, a world of rage, grief, and war, a world where morality is ambiguous and the powerful humiliate and destroy the powerless, a world where justice always seems to be on both sides and sugar-coated words serve as cover for clandestine operations of violence, a world rather like our own, yeah. right? So that, that's kind of where I see it. And, you know, that could be a comment about, you know, the context of the United States. But if we think about it here, yes, I think it's... Um, I think about the conflictual nature of the relationship between this country which at a certain point was called Britain and its um, and its twin <laughs> island yeah. and and uh, and the you know and what what the whatever we think about brexit what that has uh, brought back is that trauma of the past in all of its conflictual well, horrors one of the big and, insights uh, of your book is to say that tragedy isn't just about the character it isn't just about the, our emotional identification with the traumatic event, but about the city-state. Yeah. It's about the polis. Tell me about that. It's about the, I mean, the, the, the hero. Uh, it's, it's an idea I take from, 
Jean-Pierre Vernon and Vidal Naquet, these two important French writers on tragedy. Um, the hero um, in the tragic hero is not is the source of a problem, and the tragic hero is the source of a problem which is definitional of the city. So Oedipus, so we think of Oedipus as a person that has whatever with his mother and whatever with his father, but Oedipus is the city, and what we see in the the, the tragedy of Oedipus is the is the nature of tyranny, um, Oedipus Tyrannos, and the and what tyranny does to a city, how it pollutes a city. So Oedipus begins the play with the plague, right? and it was performed in uh, a period in um, Athenian history when there was a plague in Athens because the Athenians had brought all the people in from the countryside because the Spartans were laying waste to the countryside. There were too many people in Athens. The water got bad. People died. So, what you have in this play for 29 or so BC is uh, a situation of plague. And you have it in a context and before an audience, a city, which is a democratic city. What is the relationship between democracy and plague? Mm. And that's one of the things that the the play presents you with. It doesn't tell you what the solution is. It doesn't tell you what you do. I mean, a really important point for me is that uh, if there is an ex- a theatric a th- experience in theatre, which I think is important, it's not a message. Right? Yeah. If you want a message, buy a phone. Right? <laughs> it's not the purpose of philosophy or thinking to provide messages. That's what. That's that's the horror that has to be avoided. So what you see in a, in, a, in a play like Oedipus the King is you see. Uh, democracy and plague kind of just sitting side by side and you're presented with that you're invited to view that disjunction without being told what to think and I think that so the one claim I make early in the book is that tragedy is an is invitational it's an invitational we you can be invited into looking at these things and what you see in a play is a dis, is, is a counterpoint between two things that don't sit together. Mm. And you're presented with that difficulty of that counterpoint, of that disjunction. And you're not uh, offered a, a simple solution. And that's um, really important to focus on because that's where history happens in those counterpoints and those disjunctions. Another way of putting that might be to talk about tragedy as a way of understanding a relationship to the other, which is mm-hmm. also one of the ways you, you describe... Um, Greek tragedy, you say um, one of the most salient but enigmatic, that's a curious word, enigmatic features of Greek tragedy is its constant negotiation with the other, the barbaric, the the barbarians at the gate speaking Mm -hmm. a different language. And that seems to me entirely true, of course, and recognisable. But I wondered, did the Greeks have an answer to that? What do you do with the barbarians at the gate? Well, um... They're your enemy. Um, so, in a way, you want to kill them. Right? This is a this is a this is a culture, a civilization which is based in war. And also, a, a very important thing is that the actors would have been veterans. These weren't flimsy thespians who'd done performance <laughs> studies at, um, you know, college. Some of them might be here. They, 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 these are people that fought in campaigns, right? So Aeschylus on his tombstone, yeah. it's alleged, you know, what he, the fact that he'd written all these plays 
What mattered to him was he, he fought in the Battle of Marathon in 490. So that the, um, the, um, Remind me again what so you said. So I'm asking you that it's true that the Greek the Greek tragedy poses oh, the, other, the, other, the problem yeah, of yeah, the other, yeah, but there aren't yeah, solutions. Yeah. It seems no. to me. It's not as though we read the, the Greeks right. to understand better our relationship no. with the other. No, I mean the first the, the first play we have right 472 BCE Persians just called Persians, yeah. and it's set entirely in the court of the Persians of Susa uh, after the. Uh, defeat of the Persians in the Battle of Salamis. This is the key battle. There are a number of key battles, but in this naval battle, the Athenians defe- defeated the Persians, or at least got the Persians to withdraw. The first play that we have by happenstance, it's just the one that survives, uh, is entirely foreigners. In this case, Persians and Persians lamenting. Right? And so we see Persians lament. And then eventually we get the story of what's happened in the battle and what a catastrophe this is and what an idiot Xerxes has been, the king. And then we get a ghost. So we get foreigners and we get a ghost story. And the ghost uh, of Darius the Great is summoned and he admonishes uh, the Persians. He admonishes um, his son for committing an act of hubris and he also admonishes the Athenian audience, thinking if you overstep things in the way in which we overstep things, desecrating the altars, very important, desecrating the altars of the foreigner, then you will come to the same catastrophic end. So <clears throat> most of the plays that we have are dealing with the Persians is, is entirely Persians. The only play which has people from the same ethnic group is Antigone, where everyone's from Thebes, which is not Athens. Every other play is about some commerce with the foreigner and working out some relationship with the foreigner. Many of them deal with questions of immigration, asylum, and refuge, and what are the conditions in which refuge could be granted. And uh, one of the oldest plays that we have, called The Suppliant Maidens, is fascinating because in The Suppliant Maidens, these maidens turn up from Egypt and they're described, their skin colour is described, and their clothes are described in great detail, and their hair. So you look Egyptian, and they say, no, we're Greeks, because we came from Greece generations ago. We're really Greeks. And we'd like to come back, because we're 50, 50 of us, and they want us to marry these Egyptian men, and we don't want to do that, because they're horrible. Ooh. They turn up later in the play, and they're told to fuck off. But before that, they say, we claim refuge on the basis of blood. And the king, the king says, you know, your blood arguments have no um, purchase here because here we have, we base things on, on law uh, and collective decision making. It's the first reference to democratic procedure in uh, any, any play or any text that we have is in, is in this negotiation with the, a refuge claim. Yeah. And so, so the plays are kind of working out those, uh, it's a, I said somewhere else that, I mean, tragedy is kind of the, the, the night kitchen of democracy. It's where all of the, the stuff that democracy is not including, is, is systematically excluding women, slaves, foreigners, gets processed and thought through and worked out and presented to the city. Yeah. It's that the city is looking at itself in, its, in terms of its, its exclusions. It's very, very interesting for that reason. Mm. Um, I want to ask you about 
Greece, because you've been hanging out in Greece for the last few months. Yeah. On a fellowship at a Greek university, I think. No. Right? No? What have you been doing? Just having a holiday? Onassis Foundation. Onassis Foundation. Okay. Onassis Foundation. Wow. Um, Does the Greekness of Greek tragedy matter? And has being in Greece changed the way you think about Greek tragedy? Any Greeks here? Ah, one. Brilliant. It's a very... I mean, Greece is a very interesting place for all sorts of reasons, but the... the, um, And the Greek... Contemporary Greek relationship to antiquity is a very complex relation. Right? A relationship both of ownership and alienation. Both a sense of we are this and are we this? Um, because Greece is the only example of a nationalism that I know where uh, the nationalism in the 19th century is a nationalism that's formed in the image that certain Northern European countries have of it, notably Germany, France, and Britain. Um, They say, you are this, Greek. You you are this. You are this 5th century classical fantasy, which we will... And and the Greeks say, okay, we'll be this. We'll be the Greece that you want us to be. And then the mosque is removed from the Acropolis... Everything else that's not from the 5th century, the classical period is removed from the Acropolis. Greece is then, archaeo- uh, Athens is then archaeologized, is then constructed in relationship to the Northern European fantasy of Athens that has been projected onto it. So it's a very strange uh, idea of nation and, and nationhood. And um, it's, um, so the, the, the Greek, so, and of course the, um, the theatre is Athenian, right? This is Attic tragedy. Uh, the Athenians had it. Some of the other cities had it. But a lot of them didn't have it. Like the Spartans didn't have a clue, right? They were idiots, just good at war. Or good at war on land, not good at war on sea. The Athenians were good at that too. So it was, you know, the, the sense of Greece is, of course, a, a total fiction as Thucydides says in the history of the Peloponnesian Wars, the only thing that the only time the Greeks were unified was when they had a, a Persian enemy to, to fight against. And when the Persian enemy was was removed or retreated for a while, then the Greeks fought each other to death. And so so the Greekness of Greece is a very odd one. And indeed the word Greece is of course it's it's a it's a Romanization. It's the it's Hellas and it's something else. So it's it's a it's um, it's so the Greekness of Greece is one of those nineteenth-century nationalisms right. of which we have many, you know. Um, but it's a peculiar one in the sense in which it's about this fantasy that the projection of a, a northern European fantasy onto this other, which is Greece, this exotic Greece, and then and then Greece having to correspond to that, having after. 400 years of Ottoman rule, right? Um, so, who were the Greeks? Who are the Greeks? And who are the Greeks now? I think these are still really sort of live questions. That sounds like your next book. Let's, oh, no. let's get a reading of this book. Um, this, this is your second reading. Uh, and I think this is a section about, about war, actually. War yeah. and grief. I'll just do a little bit of this, because it's... Um, this is... Um, yeah. <coughs> Anne Carson in Grief Lessons 
writes, why does tragedy exist? Because you're full of rage. Why are you full of rage? Because you're full of grief. This is absolutely right. Antigone rages because she's full of grief for her brother, Polynices, who's refused burial rites by the leader of the city, Creon. Clytemnestra rages at Agamemnon because of her grief for her daughter, Iphigenia, slaughtered like a young foal, that's how she's described, in order to ensure favourable winds in the sails of the Greek ships on their way to Troy. Hecuba rages at the murder of her daughter, Polyxena, only to discover that all her other children have been killed as well. Hecuba's grief seems to have no bounds in the afterlife she's told that she'll be turned into a dog. We might add a further question to Carson's list. If tragedy is the rage that follows from grief, then why is one full of grief? Because we're full of war and people have been killed. Tragedy might be defined as grief-stricken rage that flows from war. We live in a world whose frame is war and where justice seems to be endlessly divided between claim and counterclaim right and left, conservative and progressive, believer and non-believer, freedom fighter and terrorist, or whatever. Each side believes unswervingly in the rightness of its position and the wrongness, or, as is usually said, the evil of the enemy. Such a belief legitimates violence, a destructive violence that unleashes counter-violence in return. We seem trapped in a cycle of bloody revenge and locked into vicious circles of grief and rage caused by war. Such is what often seems to pass for international politics in our world. This is where I think a reflection on Greek tragedy might at least illuminate our current predicament and tell us something about our present. The history of Greek tragedy is a history of war. From the war with the Persians in the early 5th century BCE to the Peloponnesian Wars that rumbled on to that century's end. From the emergence of Athenian imperial hegemony to its dissolution and humiliation at the hands of Sparta. I go on like this, and then make a point about the war veterans and all of that, um, which I won't. I don't read for too long. But tragedy was paid, played before an audience that had either directly participated in war or were indirectly implicated in war. All were traumatized by it, and everyone felt its effects. War was the life of the city and its pride, as Pericles argued. But war was also the city's fall and undoing. Yet Greek tragedy is a war story without a John Wayne figure, without a swaggering individualist who's the sole source of good in a world gone bad. On the contrary, in Greek tragedy, the hero is not the solution to the problem, but the problem itself. The hero is not the, the hero is the source of the plague that's killing the city. This is one reason why Sophocles' play is called Oedipus the King, Oedipus Tyrannos. The king is a tyrant who's polluting, polluting the city, and the only Resolution to the drama is Oedipus's expulsion and exile. This is the great virtue, the realism of ancient tragedy, as opposed to the idealised violence, empty empathy and hollow sentimentality of many contemporary war fictions. If tragedy is a drama performed by war veterans before an audience of veterans, then it pictures a world without heroes and without tyrannical leaders who delude and goad the people into making war. And so it goes on. Thank you. The thing about that passage is that you end up with Oedipus and you talk about the war veterans and mm-hmm. the soldiers in the audience. But that passage does begin with Antigone, Clytemnestra, Hecuba. Mm-hmm. When, when you quote that Iron Carson yeah. line, why does tragedy exist because you are full of rage, I can't help thinking it's women who are full of rage. Yes. And this book does start to move 
I may say so tentatively, yeah. towards rethinking the relationship of women to tragedy. Yes. I think you have a line about Helen where you say, instead of thinking about Helen as the demonic origin of the fall of um, the state, mm-hmm. um, you ask, is Helen to blame if she falls in love? Mm-hmm. But it's not just that she has this flimsy affection that brings about the fall of the state, but that, you know, that her love, the decision she makes about love might come from a lack of freedom. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you are reaching towards a, a kind of understanding of the relationship between women and tragedy. In this Completely. Yeah, insofar as I'm able to... Yes, yes. And I think philosophy is a masculinist project from Plato onwards. That's, that's its purpose. Um, the boys... People leave the stage, the boys leave the stage, they go inside for a chat with Socrates. And so it goes. And, um, and I think that what, when philosophy, what philosophy in Plato finds disturbing about tragedy, why it's excluded from Plato's well-ordered city described in The Republic, is because of its excess of uh, lamentation. It's excess of uh, la- the lamentation of, in relation to, to the experience of grief. And that is very clearly gendered. It's something that women do. So, and you go back to the tragedies, and that first tragedy I mentioned, the Persians, right the way through. Most of the plays, what happens in most of the plays is lamentation. Uh, people lamenting for uh, the death uh, of someone they, they love, Antigone most famously. So, the um, and what you the maybe was the most fascinating thing about uh, about tragedy is the fact that um, Athens was a highly patriarchal society, right? and yet in its plays something else is going on, um, and we find this recurrent focus on on women on female characters, and in particular. Female, female characters like Medea, um, Cassandra, and, and the rest, and um, and it's as if that sexual politics of the city is being worked out in the in the theatre in a way that is not easily resolvable. It's not resolvable into kind of a position. It's not saying that the Greek tragedy is feminist in any sim- simple way. It's 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 a kind of travesty and a kind of, there's a kind of queerness in, in tragedy, which is fascinating. Figures like Tiresias, who appears in a, no, a number of plays, who is both man and woman, you know, throbbing between two lives, as old T.S. Eliot said. Um, Tiresias, yes, yeah. Tiresias. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Old man, sure. <laughs> so you've got this, and there's this, um, so for me, the, what I'm, trying to do is claim that philosophy is essentially a project of affect regulation. It's an attempt to, to, to monitor emotions, passions, and in particular the monitoring uh, of the passion of grief. So what Carson says about rage and grief, this I think is incredibly powerful, and that is very clearly about the relationship. It's a very clearly gendered issue. Yeah. And so in this incredibly patriarchal society, we find this activity of theatre where something 
else is going on. And Helen, and people can go, you can, you can make that argument and kind of think, oh, fine, yeah. And that's why we should think about Antigone or whatever. Yes, um, why I like Helen so much is that Helen does exactly what she wants and gets away with it, right? She's, she goes off with this hot young man to Troy, starts the war, and many of the plays, particularly the plays of Euripides, are focused on the Trojan War. And then there's this extraordinary play called The Trojan Women, where Helen, amongst other things, defends herself in front of her husband, Menelaus. And Menelaus, uh, Hecuba says, uh, don't listen to a killer. Killer, do not let her open her mouth. And she says, Helen says, why can't I speak? I get to defend myself too. And she defends herself. And then she's not killed. And um, then there's a strange joke that is made. And basically then she goes on the boat back to back to Sparta in order to be killed. But then if we read our Homer carefully and we fast forward 10, 15 years, which doesn't isn't much in Helen's life because she's descended from a goddess, so she's immortal, so she looks great all the time. And she then she's then she's then transformed into a star, guiding sailors uh, when she finally her mortal frame dies. But in uh, the, the lovely moment when when Telemachus goes in search of his uh, father, Odysseus, in the Odyssey, you know, the, thing, the whole thing that Joyce plays with in Ulysses, um, he goes to Menelaus and says, oh, what happened to my dad? And there is Helen. Helen's there. Yeah. And she pours them drinks. She pours Telemachus and uh, Menelaus drinks. And she puts a little bit of sort of a drug in there, just so they'll feel nicer. Gives them a little bit of Xanax, you know, gives them a little bit of... And that's Helen. I mean, she's extraordinary. I love that you acted it out as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, it was his I... funny taste in this. <laughs> he says going for his water. Let's um, get some questions from the floor, because we're going to run out of time. Should we get a show of hands? And I might be able to get a few together. Uh, are there, there's one question here, but are there other questions as well? Let's get this one in first. No, so thank you for, for sharing your thoughts. It's all lovely. Um, and I should start by apologizing for not having read the, the book before. Uh, That's all right. On a question, it might be well covered um, in, the, in the text itself. But um, you, you said that, that Nietzsche's um, read of, of Greek tragedy or, or his analysis of it um, was you know, silent but present yeah. um, in, in a lot of the work. And uh, yeah. one of the other figures um, with which Nietzsche dealt with extensively um, that also seems to be a, be a bit silent in this in this coverage is uh, is Dionysus himself and mm-hmm. you know sort of the roots of of tragedy and the, yep. the Dionysian rituals and um, for example in your in your comment about um, you know the Greeks um, depiction of the barbarian its reconciliation with the other not just the other but the more natural more primitive mm-hmm. um, and uh, wilder other um, that the the Dionysian um, Panoply of rituals and events, the the, the mysteries um, that that was in fact a or, or an attempt at uh, reconciliation with this with this well, notion. We don't so what know. Other, it, might, it might have been. We don't know. Well, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, but uh, it, in Nietzsche's reading, um, in yeah, some Nietzsche's of the arguments, reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could, could you comment, for example, on, yes. on how how Nietzsche's yes. insights have informed yours? How you contrast against them? Well, I mean, what's Terrible about Nietzsche is that people, and also what's fantastic about Nietzsche, people read Nietzsche and they think, oh, this is great. 
you've got Apollo, you've got Dionysus, you've got these twin art deities that, after centuries of this and that and the other, bring forth Attic tragedy. And we have uh, the Apollinian, which is the individual, is sculpture, is the shining Phoebus Apollo, bright Apollo. And then we have the Dionysian, which is intoxication, is music, and these two forms. And this gives us a metaphysical explanation of tragedy. I think it's completely wrong. Right? What's the relationship between tragedy and the Dionysus cult? It's a long and difficult question. But the idea that there's some um, exp- that the, the Dionysus, uh, the Dionysian explains tragedy, I think, is um, a huge problem for all sorts of re- the least of which philological reasons. The fact that Dionysus only appears in one play. The last play of Euripides, the Bacchae, and it appears there in a very complex way. It was, you know, it might have just been that the the the, the, the theatre festival was called the City Dionysia because it was just next to the sanctuary of Dionysus. The theatre was just there because it was on a hill, so why not call it that? So it could be as limited as that. Why Nietzsche is so brilliant as as a thinker is that this. 26-year-old writes The Birth of Tragedy, gives it to Richard Wagner and says, Richard, I love you. Look, I've written this book. Can I hear, can I hear your music again? <laughs> Who's this? And then, but then Nietzsche, you know, when he went, when, in 1886, when he was, uh, you know, for no reason at all, when he wrote prefaces to all the books that no one had read, um, completely revised his views and then abandoned his artist metaphysics, as he called it, and so what you find in Nietzsche is both on the one hand a kind of a neat metaphysical explanation of tragedy with a whole mystical genealogy which is very seductive on the one hand. That's the Nietzsche I don't like. The other Nietzsche is a, is a much more somber, realistic, sceptical Nietzsche that comes out in particular in a book like Beyond Good and Evil. Yeah. And that Nietzsche is, I think, very close to the spirit of tragedy as I, as I want to push it. So Nietzsche's a complex case. Let's get another question in. There is one. Lovely. Thank you. Um, I wondered if you thought that good tragedy is still being written and if so whether you have an example of a favourite tragic story from contemporary popular culture. Well uh, yeah it's a good question. I think it's being written by by you and by us and in a sense in which the the um, I mean nothing good by that in the sense in which that when um, Oedipus Oedipus has been told before the play begins the story of who he is from the oracle. You will kill your father, you will sleep with your mother. He knows that story and he's walking along a road somewhere. This is the, the pre-story of Oedipus the king. And as he's walking along a road he meets um, an older man with three guards, and there's an ancient example of road rage, right? There's an altercation. And Oedipus loses it, kills the guards, and kills this older man, while not knowing who his father is, right? And there's this amazing moment in Oedipus the King when Jocasta, his mother-wife, uh, he asks Jocasta, his mother-wife, this guy, Laos, what did he look like? And she says, she looked a lot like you, but older. And you think, what does she want? Mm. You know, she's just got rid of one old one and she's got a new one. Same, a new model of the same thing, but sort of zooped up, having solved a riddle. But the point is that the, when, when Oedipus raises his arm to strike, 
the curse of the past flows through and the prophecy is fulfilled. I think that's what happens in our lives. I think that that's, that's, what, happen- that's what family life is. I think, so I think that it's, there are lots of examples of, I think, obviously, that the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, things like that come to mind. A movie like Magnolia would be an example of where tragedy is and lots of other examples as well. But I think it's more that if we think about, think about the moments when you lose it with someone that you love, a parent or a child, when you lose it completely and the hand reaches out or you, you, you fly into rage. And at that point, the past is pouring through you, right? That's the tragic moment. That's, and it's all that tragic, all that theatre does is to give us a, uh, the ability to reflect and move back on that, to see that coldly. So I think there's something um, very important in theatre for me is the, is in a way the coldness of the experience, right? We love this idea of, you know, sentimentally identifying with characters and say being moved by the sufferings of antiquity. Yes and no. You watch this thing happen and you, you're sitting there in the, watching this life being destroyed. Um, with a cool disinterest. And there's something very important about that. It's not me right now. Thank God. It could be. Right? That's, that's, uh, that's terror and, and pity too. So I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's, it's you know, what's going on in tragedy is the playing out of what's structural in our, in our relations, in our human relations. Should we get another question in? Um... The one at the front here. Hello. Um, can you elaborate briefly on what you mean about um, the moral ambiguity of tragedy? Yeah. I, um, and is it that you're talking about that tragedy is morally neutral or that it's morally very complex? Ambiguous in the sense in which there are two... Um, there are at least two interpretations of one concept in many of the plays... So give me two, give you two examples. Uh, Antigone is about one word, and that word is nomos, law, roughly. Different sense in Greek, but let's say nomos. Um, Crayon's claim is that nomos is the city. It's the law that I decide. That's the law. And anyone that's against that law is my enemy and doesn't deserve to be treated appropriately. So therefore, Polynices... Um, who's been a traitor to the city, cannot be buried. Antigone has a different meaning of law. Law for her means that the dead have to be buried. That's the family obligation. The dead have to be buried. So the play is a conflict about the meaning of one word and two meanings that that one word can have. And what you see in the play is that one word turned this way and turned that way. You're not told who is right, who is wrong. Right? There's no, as it were, conclusion saying, this is the meaning of law. And then in, in the Oresteia, um, the, the word around which the whole trilogy in that case is structured is the word justice. Yeah. Decay. And uh, what is justice? One version of justice is that Clytemonestra murders Agamemnon. And she murders him justly because Agamemnon murdered her daughter in order to have good wins in the sails in order to, to fight war in Troy. It is just to kill Agamemnon. When she slaughters her husband, she brings the body out and says, 
behold a masterpiece of justice, right? Like that. And then Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, the next play, says, that's wrong. Wives don't get to kill husbands. I will kill my mother. Takes him a little while, but he slaughters her. And then says, this is just. So who's right? So the play presents... An amb- a, a structural ambiguity about a meaning, the meaning of one concept, and you're not. There's no third level of interpretation saying this is what it really means, and that's why we go to things like um, places like Aristotle, or why we go to you know pop philosophy, or, or why we you know whatever it might be. What is what is the most powerful thing about uh, theatre is its um, what I call it's, it's, it's transcendental opacity. <laughs> the fact that we're not told what... Because, okay, this is the way it goes. I, I won't be, so, the philosophical delusion, right, which is there in religion, it's there in all sorts of people in the world, maybe, but the, the, it's there in philosophy. The philosophical delusion is that the right use of reason can allow us to understand the nature of that which is. It can give us an understanding of what philosophers call being, the ultimate structure of reality. On the basis of that ultimate structure of reality, we can then derive certain moral views. So philosophers like to make an ontological claim. Everything is substance, if you're Spinoza. On that basis, you then derive a series of moral views. Tragedy, whatever it is, doesn't allow that to happen. We don't know what is the case, and we don't know what to do. And I think that's much healthier. I can see that you, you love opacity and mystery. You relish in it. Um, um, but there's one mystery that I want you to resolve to finish our event, which is, um, what did Isabelle Huppert say? She says, a line in Simon's book, actually there are a lot of names dropped in this book, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Walter White from Breaking Bad. But there's a line where you say, anyhow, Isabel Huppert and I talked and I tried with some trepidation and limited success to explain Antigonita. What did Isabel Huppert say to you? She said that, you know, what you're saying is fine, but it's just ideas. (laughs) And that's not what theatre is about. Theatre is about an experience, she said, and giving yourself over to that experience. So I use that. That's where the book ends with her, as it were, abolishing me. Um, You know, it's about an experience where you... It doesn't only happen in theatre, but it happens in a powerful way in theatre where you are presented with something deeply contradictory. It's every, every play by Shakespeare, by the way, right? Yeah. We could also talk about that. Um, you're pre- presented with something deeply contradictory and you're held there um, in that experience of um, what I call at the end of the book, aliveness. And you're held there and you're not permitted to say, this is what this means. Or this is the the outcome. This is the moral of the drama. Um, theatre is a you know what, what, theatre is an experience of of discomfort in a, in a hugely important way. And I think we um, that's why I mean the book is an argument for for theatre and the kind of experience that theatre provides. May all philosophers be admonished by Isabel Huppert. Sounds like. Um, will you join me in thanking the remarkable Sam Critchley? Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, 
visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.